Welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio. My name is Justin Mogg. What we do on this program every week is gather folks from around the community for conversations you won't hear anywhere else. And today we're going to wrap up our review of the highlights from the 2022 Environmental Justice Conference on Climate Change and Health, People, Principles, and Priorities in Policymaking that was held online on Saturday, October 1st. The West Jefferson County Community Task Force, NAACP, and UofL's Envirome Institute were proud to present this sixth annual environmental justice conference with presentations on all sorts of great things today we're going to hear from jim beckett managing partner and co-founder of the reland group shaping neighborhoods beginning with the end in mind highlighting the work being done in the park hill and algonquin neighborhoods then we'll hear from brian holtzclaw environmental engineer with the epa region 4 out of atlanta georgia on funding technology assistance for vulnerable communities then we'll hear from Larry Taylor, Executive Advisor of the Office of Legislature and Inter- Intergovernmental Affairs from the Kentucky Energy and Environment Cabinet on tools for environmental justice. And we wrap it up with Arnita Gatz and the main organizer, Executive Director of the West Jefferson County Community Task Force with some closing thoughts on environmental justice. All here on Truth to Power. I will tell you all a little bit about my journey here and, and into this reland. Um, I was born about five minutes before Dr. Martin Luther King was pronounced dead on April 4th, 1968. And my mom used to tell me that it meant something. And for most of my life, it just meant that everybody remembered my birthday. But in 1999, when I moved back to Louisville uh, after law school, we started the Urban League Young Professionals uh, under Ben Richmond's leadership. And uh, I was starting to understand my purpose. And we started the organization because we just felt that many of us younger Black professionals with a degree or two on the wall just weren't doing enough in our black and brown communities, specifically the West End. And while we did a few good things, ultimately, when I left and our family moved for Winston-Salem, I felt like we just weren't courageous enough. And so 20 years later, on April 7th in 2019, I was invited by my mother to attend a dedication luncheon at Simmons College uh, to highlight the home of the first African-American professor at UofL. Folks like Raul Cunningham, who I believe is on here, uh, Cheryl Bryant Hamilton, Daryl Owens, who we just lost recently, and other very prominent, uh, both faith-based nonprofit and uh, Black leadership were there. And when I left, I broke down crying. And my mom said, why are you crying? And I said, you know, all the work that these folks in this room have been doing. And I look at the state of our city. Now, remember, it is April of 2019. And I just felt like I wasn't doing enough. Uh, These folks have been dedicating their lives. And I felt like God had given me very broad shoulders to manage uh, quite a bit. And so that's spring, I got together with three of my friends and we started talking about how we could create generational transformation in the West End. And we started Reland Group. In August of 2019, I was at the Leadership Louisville Luncheon where we had invited Sylvester Turner, the mayor of Houston, to come. And he talked about how he was moving Houston. We'd gone through all kinds of environmental challenges and natural disasters. And he he would tell people, we are not here to be incrementalists. We're here to transform. And little did I know that in less than a year, this issue of needing to transform would become even more apparent in our city. All right. So what I want to do is I'm going to walk you through what Reland Group believes will be a generational transformation uh, in a couple of um, neighborhoods, Park Hill and Algonquin, that we don't hear much about, and how we're walking with community to do so. Uh, Our overall philosophy is to address the causes of the numerous disparities in our black and brown communities and the systemic racism that's been woven into these most vulnerable communities. To do so, we must begin planning with the end in mind. In other words, what we mean by that is we cannot hope 
that other critical aspects, pieces needed for communities to, to thrive will just happen. We have to make them happen. Um, while our city arguably is very philanthropic, we have been addressing symptoms and not the causes. One of the greatest fallacies in our city is that we can become a first-class city that attracts a new workforce, new companies that can hold itself out as a compassionate city if we just keep building in the core of downtown and out east. Our West End, it's not directly attached to the success of the city and its ability to grow. It, I would argue it is the most important area of our city that will be the catalyst for growth and prosperity. As our West End goes, so goes the city. And while I love going to the Omni Hotel and New Lou and Norton Commons and a whole bunch of other things, our city still continues to languish on so many levels. The founders of Reland, we are a certified minority urban planning and design company um, put together to do the hard. Begin with Chris Posey, who's an urban planning specialist, HUD and federal regulation guru, Tarek Nally, who runs a human-centered design company, Sai Safi, who's a civil engineer who builds and designs environmentally sustainable and regenerative homes and spaces for all of his career, and myself, a recovering corporate lawyer and commercial guy. And while I'm a managing partner, I get great support and help uh, in this space. Um, and I focus a lot of my time on putting critical pieces together that help neighborhoods and people both believe there is hope, but actually feel power. We also have Nana Lynch, who is a developer out of New York, running a company somewhat similar to Reland, um, who has many, many years of development experience and has been helping us as an advisor and Carla Deering, who did a short run as mayor, is a financial person who has really helped us in connecting financial resources and thinking about how we structure finance and most importantly right now, helping with our incredible grants that we've received, which again, I'll talk about in just a second. Reland's greater mission is to leverage the private sector and connect those resources and intentionality into our communities. Uh, we believe neighborhoods can be designed to be healthier. We believe they can be designed to stay affordable, that people can stay in their neighborhoods, have ownership beyond just in a house. Imagine owning a portion of a $20 million building and to ultimately break the causes of poverty and the opportunity impediments. But you can only really do that when you put power in the hands of the neighborhood. We believe that our neighborhoods deserve it all. All of it, green space, trees, parks, 22nd century design schools infused with the neighborhood and focused on solving gaps in equity around education. Food, right? We don't have a food desert. We have a food apartheid. There's nothing wrong with the soil. What's wrong is the intent. If there's nothing in the legislature that prevents food from being prevalent across the West End, then it can only be one thing, and that's racism. We see a truly mixed use and mixed income environment, but as you'll see shortly, a culturally restorative and rich environment built and designed by the people who live in the neighborhood. Of course, there is a big delta between courage and conviction. My pastor, Corey Scholl at Burnett Avenue talked about this a lot. We have a city with a lot of belief in certain things and what should happen, but very little courage to actually take the action and that step to make such changes, to deliver actual equity. Not check writing, though funds are always critical, but stepping in and being part of solving the causes of such disparities. It also takes a plan, a strategy, one that starts beginning with the end in mind. To build the strategy, to move courageously in a way that results in tangible change, um, that will be sustainable, means we're going to have to rethink how we move. Reland is a catalyst in creating communities of opportunities, a community that actually has opportunities. And that means that we have to unpack those causes, those barriers that prevent opportunity for our most marginalized communities. 
we have identified similar to what the urban league has talked about often five or six key areas to create communities of opportunity education job creation job readiness through training and employment health and wellness environmental and social justice equitable and inclusive housing and while reland is not the expert in these areas we must be the conduit to bring courageous leaders in each of these areas to create generational transformation to create what people deserve not only to live but to prosper when people in the west end zip codes are dying 10 to 12 years earlier than east end zip codes we have a problem and it is not just an access problem how do you address these problems you put power into our community's hands to really understand the depth of these matters and we build outcomes that we can measure and iterate when necessary but we cannot just hope as i mentioned earlier that these things will happen without specific intentionality so let's talk about the neighborhood and what we're doing so in early 2019 we received a deck that the city was shopping to outside opportunity zone investors of city owned assets in the west end my partner chris posey identified this 17 acre brownfield sitting in the park hill and algonquin neighborhoods a brownfield that had been sitting since the mid 90s The property was put out for what was called a solicitation of interest through the city's RFP process and their site in June of 2020 and Reland was the only company or entity to put in a proposal. Imagine that 17 acres, the only company to put in a proposal. What should that tell you? It was a short 130 plus page proposal on how these incredible neighborhoods deserved real care. real resources and with such care and resources could absolutely transform. We won the development rights in October of 2020 and I'll get you up to speed shortly on where we are. For those of you not familiar with uh, our nine West End neighborhoods, as we see Park Hill down there in the east-west corner of the South End in Algonquin. It's right on the border where the property is actually sits in Algonquin, but right on Hill Street, which is the border between Park Hill and Algonquin neighborhoods. The poverty rate in these two neighborhoods sits at around 71%. median family income is $18,000 unemployment at 19% none of these statistics should surprise you but i want you to understand the reality of two of these neighborhoods and it sits across from parkway place housing uh, 630 plus units that were built in the 40s and are absolutely deplorable from the living conditions that folks must partake in there with black mold and other things the site is about 10 minute walk from uvell two blocks away from mcfarren elementary which houses over 600 elementary students and over 200 early childhood kids next to an lge substation other residential and light industrial footprints but very very few amenities and the conditions of parkway place and the fact that uh, louisville metro housing has refused to talk to reland but we're confident that will be changing soon lgne their substation sits right there to the southwest corner and flies in the face of environmental justice if we can bury a substation for the yum center then we of course can address the substation in a similar fashion and under our environmentally regenerative design philosophy potentially go off grid there is a lot of work to do but as i mentioned reland was formed to do the hard so for 75 years the rodeo site was home to a varnish company wastewater treatment site um, in 1994 the operations ceased and the city purchased the land in 2002 um in 2009 under former mayor abramson a park hill industrial corridor plan was put in place to address job creation and amenities that weren't present but after all of that work and from what we read and saw and talked to some folks who were part of that a lot of work and resources the plan just went away i even asked former mayor why I and mean, he just said there wasn't enough momentum as i mentioned we won the rights to develop the parcel in october of 2020 
and are currently putting together a remediation plan. Uh, just this year, the city granted a $10 million grant through the American Rescue Plan dollars to clean up this property after all this time and after them owning it for over 20 years. And uh, Reedland is leading the remediation plan uh, with our um, environmental consultants, and we expect the actual remediation to begin either at the end of this year or the very beginning of 2023. So how do we create a socially just, culturally rich, live, work, play destination? Destination, a place that people want to come and experience a neighborhood, its residents, its culture. We do it by a thing that you've heard me mention many times, putting power in the hands of the neighborhood. And so what we start with is placekeeping. This is not the community engagement process we normally see. It's a process of understanding place and community. It is a health equity and cultural healing process first so that we can understand the people and the assets, wonderful assets in this neighborhood, and then help community understand that they have power. They are leading, not us. We are walking beside community, not in front. And as we develop understanding, we move into policy and informing design of not just the 17 acres, but surrounding parcels that we'll be acquiring to help design a neighborhood plan, not just a 17 acre plan. Understanding what creates a sense of place. What is socially just? What is power? Where do we see culture? What are spaces in which we don't feel welcome? This is all part of the placekeeping process. And we've been doing it for well over four or five months and learning. And let me tell you all, something special is happening. Reland uh, has partnered with Center for Neighborhoods as our fiscal agent. And through partnership, we've been awarded almost a million dollars to put entirely into this place, keeping in place, making community process. Dr. Brandy Kelly Pryor is leading the process on the ground and a group called Hester Street, Street, a community equity place, keeping and place making shop out of New York has been the project lead. As I mentioned, we've been going for over four months, a little more of that if you include planning, and we have about 25 to 30 community members who get paid $50 a meeting through our partnership with a Black-owned financial company called Mochafi. Mochafi focuses on the unbanked and underbanked throughout the country. The Parkdale Algonquin Community of Opportunity Advisory Board is what it's called, and we are creating a movement. We also have two community leads, one of whom I believe is on the call, Bruce Sherrard, uh, who's one of the leaders of this group, who get compensated extra funds for their efforts to do outreach. And when I was asked by one of the members, why are you paying us? And I said, well, if you sit on the TARC board, whether you make $100,000 or $50,000 or $200,000, they pay you $50 for your time. We believe your time is valuable, but you never have to feel like you have to take the money. But we believe that's what you're supposed to do when you ask people to come help you learn. And we have been doing outreach and capturing video, and we have an intranet site that the community is building on. And we have four others who are about to move in leadership roles as well as we organically continue this movement. We meet at a Black-owned location in Park Hill. We have Black-owned caterers who feed folks. And we're going into phase two that will be focused on policy and informing design and that will run over the next nine to 12 months. This is a little example of the process Forming, storming, norming, and performing, and we are definitely in the norming phase. Right after forming, there were debates, people were talking over each other in the storming phase, but it's remarkable how folks have started to understand and realize 
that when we started, while it felt like there was not a lot of hope, that has changed. And while we have a long way to go, I really do believe that people are beginning to get inspired and beginning to believe that they have power. And as we move into informing design, we'll do pop-ups and art installations and test things so that we really understand what represent the fingerprints of culture in these two unbelievable communities. We must re-inspire. And one of the ways we're doing that is through our design philosophy. Through SciSafi, our partner brings many, many, many years of experience in what's called the Living Building Challenge. We also follow passive house design to reduce the carbon footprint and well-building. This is all about health. It's about nature. It's about people. This is about creating beautiful structures. And it's about health. And that's what we expect in design. And that's what people deserve. So how can we turn this into something beautiful. And the good news is we already have beautiful people. We have an incredible neighborhood with incredible assets and the beginning of a movement. And we have the right, we are having the right conversations with the right people and institutions, but this movement waits for no one other than the neighborhood. And so we say through beautification comes possibility. For 20 some odd years, 29 years, if you include when operations stopped, That was the window for all those people in Parkway Place, for all the people that go to Kingdom Land Church, for all those children that go to McFerrin, for all those people that work up and down Hill Street or own homes on Hill Street or on 10th Street or on 11th Street. That's been their window. This is what their window should be. You know what helps people live longer? Seeing beauty, seeing trees and green. Yeah, and Park Hill and Algonquin, right? Not out in the East End, not out in St. Matthews, right? Not out in Prospect, in Park Hill and Algonquin the audacity to think you can put something this beautiful in a neighborhood like that. We know we need housing. Louisville, it's been told, it was said over and over, 31,000 affordable housing upside down. But housing does not alone solve the problems. And not just for 17 acres, but for the neighborhood. Key space needs from the Community of Opportunity Advisory Board from their mouths include things like intergenerational community gathering spaces, dedicated senior family housing, program delivery spaces, mental and physical health care spaces, community meeting rooms and classrooms, shopping centers, fresh, affordable, and healthy food spaces, athletic and music slash dance facilities, community workshop and maker space. This is what that community of advisory group has said are the key priorities for transforming a neighborhood. This community, as I mentioned before, and will continue to say it, and I say it whether I'm meeting with the president of a very large bank or a nonprofit partner, this community and the greater West End community deserves it all. Deserves it all. That's the bottom line. So what I want to leave you with is this is not about buildings. This is about people. Okay, I'm going to repeat that again. This is about people. Reland, unfortunately, is well past expecting people in positions of privilege to feel ashamed and to bring a high level of caring to turn back the hands of systemic racism that have plagued our communities. So we're just going to do it. We're going to do it and we're going to do the hard. And we're going to give the neighborhoods the power and to be a catalyst to bring real equity into our forgotten neighborhoods, but to do it with neighborhood leading. My mother used to always tell me that my job was to create a ripple and trust that the ripple will touch many, many people. Well, Reland is going to do more than create a ripple. We're going to help create a movement that will be led by the beautiful, proud residents of Park Hill and Algonquin to start, but a movement that will transform the city, I do believe, to my core. A city that badly needs to be transformed, but I believe we can do this together. So with that, I thank you for sharing my vision. And Arnita, again, thank you for the opportunity to share.
Oh, it's a pleasure to be on here. I am so lifted up to see all the people on the screen today. So today is my brief talk. I think we have a fairly seasoned audience. So today we're going to talk about some developments on EJ legislation, funding, technical assistance, and tools. So I've only got four staff dedicated environmental justice currently, but in the last couple of months, I've given a thumbs up to hire over 10. So this is a new age as far as the federal government embracing environmental justice with many pieces of legislation, policies, and funding opportunities. So I'm just going to touch on EJ in a really brief manner, talk about legislation and other policy matters. Funding and technical assistance, we've got a huge amount in the pipeline, as well as environmental justice and actually civil rights tools and guidance coming around the corner. So why does it matter? I've been in the agency for 34 years. I've never seen an administration that's embraced um, this subject area so much. Priority is on environmental justice. Whether the current staff knows it or not, everybody's responsibility is to integrate EJ into their job. This is the first year we have made a black and white commitment on paper. What is our implementation plan for the next fiscal year. So we have articulated what are we going to plan to do to integrate EJ into all the work that we do, whether it be community work, working with our external partners or communities, and the connection with civil rights. So what is justice? You know what it is. As many of you know, injustice has been embedded throughout the laws and policies of our government structures for years and years. It's had ter terrible legacies in the way of redlining, segregation, a siting of facilities, access to loans, education, and now even voting rights. So it's been in about every federal agency that you can imagine. And it, it's not a surprise we've seen injustice at EPA and our environmental methods to protect human health and the environment. We're making strides to overcome that. So as far as the um, recent developments on laws, policies, but our overall uh, goal is to achieve more environmental justice for communities. Some of you may already know about these executive orders, which have cascaded into a slew of initiatives. You may know about Justice 40. We are striving to achieve that federal benefits of all the ongoing monies that go out from the federal government land in communities that are disadvantaged. Thanks to that, uh, the new CJS tool has been created. If I had time, I'd do a quick demo. It's very intuitive itself. You've got the strategic plan, which required the implementation plans that each of our 10 regions across the country, as well as our national program offices, the Office of Air, the, the Office of Land Emergency Management, the Office of Water, has had to write and commit in writing, and that's going to hold our feet to the fire uh, through the end of the year, this first year. Are we really achieving what we promised to do for the American public? That's very exciting. It was an exhausting effort trying to get everyone at the table in Atlanta, but we did, and we're pretty proud of what we put together. I'm hoping these will be made public in some way, shape, or form. We'll see. We did an introspection on where we're not meeting the goals of equity within our carrying out our programs, such as grants and this and that. That's not as big a deal as the new update to 12898, which came about in 1994. It is going through a probably a major revision. 
to that executive order on EJ. There's other laws that you've seen come out recently. The American Rescue Plan, a lot of funding, but never before have we seen this slew of very encouraging legislation and policies. The ARP, if you didn't already know, many of our Clean Air Act regulatory agencies, state and local, including Louisville, has benefited from some direct awards to promote air monitoring. Additionally, it should be any minute where communities apply for air monitoring competitively, and that announcement should be coming out shortly. The next one, we call it the bill. If you've got problems with clean drinking water and remediation, there's a lot of hope on the horizon that that money will go to increasing your quality of work on those two issues. And most, most recently is the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act. Three billion will be to advance EJ, and that just floors a lot of us in a good way. There's several uh, working groups on hand to design new grant programs on how we can lift up communities, our regulatory partners, and many other stakeholders in this fight for environmental justice. The new news on funding is this, but um, this is not static with the IRA with $3 billion. These pots of money will most notably increase. So keep in mind that there's small grants. If you're a community-based group wanting small grants, those are going to come out in the spring-summer timeframe, $100,000 each. The more complex grants, we call them EJ Collaborative Problem Solving Grants. Um, you've probably got to have a little bit more under your belt to take on those. They're competitive as well, but they're half a million. And the second one, although it says state, it stands for State Environmental Justice Cooperative Agreements, it is eligible local governments, federally recognized tribes. So keep in mind, those are going to be coming out in November. So if Louisville Metro wants to go after it, uh, I greatly encourage that. The other big deals are coming out. We're in the midst of a competition for um, entities, large nonprofits to run a new technical assistance center, which will support EPA, but also DOE and USDA. I think the funding is higher than 50 million now. That'll be providing free technical assistance, particularly EPA EJ issues, grant writing and so forth and so on. That is closing up shortly. Those will probably be online next spring to which local state CBOs can have access. The next thing is the fund the funder. Running the grants program out of EPA has been great, but the small grants take a huge amount of resources. So we're exporting it to a third party. They're going to run that program. We're going to closely oversee it. So as far as the tools go, you have the standard EJ screen. It's been getting better and better through the years. It's been schooling ordinary federal agency, uh, state, local agency bureaucrats on looking more precisely at a community and looking at their uh, weaknesses and vulnerabilities from broadband to certain kinds of health impacts. And there's a new revision coming out in the next month. And then there'll be another revision mainly to improve it and expand the capabilities uh, around December. So that's a really good thing. And if you like to know the CGES tool, as we affectionately call it, it is the first tool which rides in to help identify disadvantaged communities in the Federal Justice 40 initiative. Super easy to use. Don't be intimidated by that. By the way, we do have classes on EJ screen. So if your group would like a class or an online class, we're happy to do that. And then right around the corner, there's going to be 
some more civil rights uh, guidance. Actually, this came out in the last month and a half. Civil rights and NEJ with permitting FAQ. Although we haven't had any training on it, there is a big effort to train internal staff. And we'll love to do that with local and state government. And the cumulative impacts framework, we are getting on calls almost every other week on how that's developing. That's an exciting, that's a long overlooked area of what we're not doing right. And now it's finally coming to pass. We'll be looking at cumulative impacts and also foundational non-discrimination requirements are right around the corner. Okay. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's so nice to see all the faces of all the participants today. It gives me a lot of hope and pleasure that everyone is, is engaged on a Saturday to cover these really critical issues. Yes. So with that, I'm going to go to our next speaker. All right. Thank you, Arnita. Um, my name is Larry Taylor, and I am in the Secretary's Office for the Energy Environment Cabinet here in Kentucky. And I've been with the agency for close to 29 years. And I'm glad that I could be here today and to share you some perspectives that we have when it comes to implementing environmental justice in our state programs and how we pass that down into our local governments and the agencies and organizations that we work with. So I'm going to look at some of the executive orders on environmental justice. And Brian went through all those in great detail, and I'll try to hit on those a little bit more and then talk about the impacts that those executive orders and all of the federal actions have on states and local government. And then talk about some of those federal program requirements and the challenges and questions that remain in our mind as we try to move forward with implementing environmental justice in our state. So beginning of 2021, there was a relaunch of the public engagement calls by the National Environmental Justice Advisory Committee. There were three new executive orders that related to climate and equity. The White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council was created. The White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council was elevated in its role. The uh, Council on Environmental Quality also took a more central role Justice 40, when that was announced last year, that had it was 21 different programs that were part of the pilot. Seven of those fell within EPA. And then there's been some suggestions that they may revise that 1994 executive order that President Clinton signed that started us all down this path of considering environmental justice in our actions. So we have non-point source 319 grants and um, looking at how the funding goes to those agencies, Justice 40 being that 40% of benefits of federal funding will go to disadvantaged communities. And then drinking water SRF, clean water SRF, the Brownfields Program, the Superfund Remedial Program, the Diesel Emission Reduction Acts Program, and reducing lead in drinking water. And then on top of that, then the, the infrastructure bill was passed last November 15th. It's uh, often called the bipartisan infrastructure law. And then just recently, the Inflation Reduction Act was also passed. And all of these different programs and actions that EPA has been taking and the federal government has been taking have some part of it is involved with disadvantaged communities or justice. And so with the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, the list of affected programs is close to now 72 different programs that have some sort of justice component to it. So switching a little bit, Brian also stated that there are some tools that are available. So we're going to look at the two primary tools, maybe in a little more detail. And the reason why I want to bring that up is to show that there are some differences between these two tools. 
the EJ screen we've been using for many years now, several years since it first came out. And they continue to make improvements and refine it and add more data into it. And it's a very good tool. The climate and economic justice screening tool came out from the Council for Environmental Quality. And this is notable because climate and economic justice tool during the Justice 40 initiative, it directed the Council for Environmental Quality to develop a tool for identifying disadvantaged communities. So that's what that tool is. It came out. And there are some significant differences and challenges. And then there's more tools coming. Not very long ago, Health and Human Services, and CDC, they released a tool called Environmental Justice Index. And some states are also developing tools. Um, so with all these tools coming out, we want to talk about the challenges and impacts that, that has on decision-making from a state perspective. And that's obviously my desire is to, to look at this from my perspective and see how we're going to use these. So first is EJ Screen 2.0. I just found out as well as you did that they're revising this. So maybe we'll have a 2.1 or 3.0 coming up in the next few months. And I'm looking forward to seeing what that has in it. It is developed by EPA. And that's very important to note. It's developed by EPA to evaluate the combined environmental and demographic indicators. So there are 12 environmental indicators, PM 2.5, ozone, diesel PM, and then there are seven demographic indicators. So those are people of color, income, unemployment rates, linguistic isolation, education, under age five or over age 64. So then what they do is they have an EJ index. An EJ index combines a demographic index, which is when you put in the uh, people of color, the income, unemployment rates, and all those things, they can develop an index of a score for that, and it can identify percentiles. So it can say the top five percentile um, when compared to the state or the nation. You can um, look at the top five or 10 percentile or top 20 percentile for those environmental indicators as well. Or they can be combined and have an EJ index, which is the combination of those individual environmental indicators combined with that demographic indicator. So that would say from a percentile basis, you can look at it from either comparing it to the other areas in the state or other areas in the country how does that area rank for that environmental indicator um, compared to other locations within the state or the nation? So this is a very robust and useful tool because its functionality is very wide. You can look at the individual environmental indicators, you can look at the individual demographic indicators, or you can look at them rolled up as an EJ index, or you can look at a demographic index, and that can be very, very helpful. It's map-based, so you can identify either a point or you can draw a line. You can draw a polygon. You can look at census tracts. And we actually used this last December when the tornado came through uh, western Kentucky and parts of Tennessee and Alabama. The cabinet secretary asked me to identify, are there any disadvantaged or EJ areas within the path or in the near in the uh, neighborhood of that path of the tornado. So we were able to draw a line and say we want to know within a half a mile or a mile of that line, either side of the hundreds of miles that this tornado took, are there any communities that would be considered disadvantaged? And that was very helpful in our decision making to have that information on such a short notice within just a, a couple hours, we were able to pull that together. In fact, I talked to Brian about it last fall because we were trying, and Brian was trying to, to map that as well. So we, we were able to get this information that was very helpful to us. 
EJ screen also has reporting. So you can develop reports from it um, and do standardized reports, which are very useful. If you don't know how to use EJ screen, you can, do, you can draw a line or a circle or uh, a point or select a census track and say you want a standardized report and it will show you all the information for that area that you've identified. It also allows for import of external data and shapefiles. So if you have GIS information, other things that aren't part of EJ screen, it allows you to import those into that and lay it over all those EJ issues as well. And it allows you to save sessions, which, so this is just a, a picture, just an example that I have provided. And I don't know if you can see my, my cursor, but this is Lexington. Um, you can see the red areas are, are the top fifth percentile for for that area for that demographic index. Orange is considered to be the top 10 percentile and the yellow is a top 20th percentile. So you can see that around parts of Lexington, um, maybe some parts of Montgomery County, which is near Mount Sterling, those areas have some areas that are in the top fifth percentile for the demographic index when you look at that compared to the state. Then you can see some other areas that maybe are in the top 30th percentile, the top 40th percentile on different shades of gray. This gives you some granularity. It allows you to look at the highest priorities and you know those other levels below it. The climate and economic justice screening tool was developed as a result of that, as I mentioned, the executive order 14008. And they needed a tool that they could use for identifying disadvantaged communities. And that's specifically to be used by the Justice 40 initiative, which required the federal government to identify and to, to use 40% of the overall benefit of federal funding to disadvantaged communities. It's still in a beta release, I believe, but things could change rapidly. I expect that there will be revisions based on comments that I have heard other states and local governments batting around. Comments are no longer being accepted from what I understand, but I'm sure that if there are any data errors or things that need to be modified, that there is an opportunity and the availability to submit comments in the tool. So now that we compare that to EJ screen, so what this one has different data sets based on census tract, and that looks at climate change, things such as agricultural loss or building loss or clean energy, energy burdens or PM 2.5 or housing, affordable housing, as well as lead-based paint, value of homes, legacy pollution, training workforce development. So the way that CJST works, EJ screen has those different indexes and shows color graphics. This combines low income and a low higher education enrollment or low high school graduation rate with each of those individual census tract data. So for instance, if something is considered disadvantaged for climate change, it would be elevated agricultural loss or building loss combined with low income and low high education or low high high school degree rates. So this will identify something as disadvantaged when it has one of those data sets elevated combined with one of those economic or education issues. You'll notice it says income and education. It doesn't talk about race, color, national origin, which is one of the concerns that some people have raised. So over in the Lexington area, you'll notice Lexington does not even, is not even identified as disadvantaged. That's a problem when we consider that for the demographic index, some of us may think that certain communities in Lexington or Louisville may be disadvantaged, but this climate and economic justice tool does not identify it as such. 
One of the other concerns that I have, and I'm sure others have, is that it's black or white, yes or no. It is either disadvantage or not disadvantage and does not have the granularity that EJ Screen has. But they are intended to complement each other. There are certain things that the climate and economic justice screening tool will identify, particularly because it's climate and economic justice. There are certain areas that may be from a race, color, or national origin perspective are not identified or from an environmental perspective are not identified as disadvantaged. But particularly when you look at what's happening in Florida and South Carolina over the last few days, um, Eastern Kentucky over the last couple months with the flooding and all the climate issues, there are certain areas along rivers and streams that maybe are not from a typical environmental justice perspective. We might not have identified as disadvantaged, but with the consideration of climate change, there are some areas that need to be focused when we're looking at climate issues. I see EJ Screen as being very useful for screening disproportionate environmental burdens and harms at the community level. CEJST is really good at defining maps particularly from a climate perspective, and most notably, because it was developed for Justice 40, then I suspect that the federal government is going to want to use something like this that's easy to to say something's a disadvantage or not disadvantaged for those federal funding processes. So each of them have their own utility. For some of the processes that we are using them for, I think that we'll probably use EJ Screen a little more, but from programs that are involving federal government funding, we'll probably need to use the CEJST or some hybrid between the two. So there are some challenges in particular that that I see. One in particular is that uh, there are different requirements and tools depending on the program. So, you know, if it's a Justice 40 program, then they may have certain requirements of which tools need to be used or how they're to be used. There are other federal programs that predated EJ Screen or predated CJST, such as the wind grants that came out from federal government. The wind grant was specifically for water infrastructure. That one defined disadvantaged based on access to public water. So it's disadvantaged maybe because that community does not have a public water system, which in Kentucky is very rare. I think 95% of Kentuckians have access to good, clean public water or at least public water, uh, we do have some challenges with certain areas that have problems with resiliency and with uh, loss of a lot of treated, treated water or upkeep and maintenance. So it's either access to water, they either, that community doesn't have water, or the community has repeated violations or repeated management issues that have made them disadvantaged. So depending on the program, they may have different requirements of how that agency is supposed to, to identify whether something's disadvantaged or not disadvantaged. And then there are different definitions. As I pointed out, that environmental justice screening tool or EJ screen, that one may define disadvantage differently than the CEJST. CEJST is going to identify something disadvantaged based on whether there is one of those environmental or other factors combined with income or education. Um, Then there's the issue that I brought up that in some cases, those definitions may or may not include race, color, and national origin. So there's some concerns about how you define something. And then one concern that I have too is that if a program requires the use of a tool such as CJST, Let's say hypothetically that that community may consider themselves to be disadvantaged based on race, color, national origin, 
But if that program requires that federal funding to be used based on a different tool or different definition, then there can be some disenfranchisement. If a community or neighborhood considers themselves to be typically or historically disadvantaged or in environmental justice area, but yet this federal funding is not going to be used in their area because a different tool is required. So I I think that's a challenge, something that, that we need to keep our eyes on and we need to be careful with. Um, so then there's state specific factors. And that is when I talked about EJ screen, I talked about the fact that the demographic or other EJ indexes can be used to compare to the state or to the nation. And each state is different and different factors are going to have a different role in different states. So I think it's very important that we keep that in mind, particularly when Um, For example, one of the things that I usually talk about is that that environmental justice was really, um, was actively, they they really applied environmental justice early on to in places like North Carolina, the PCB landfill, where they were wanting to put PCB contaminated soil into a landfill in a community that was was primarily minorities. And that was one of the the early uh, protests. And it was an active sit-in where people said, we don't want that in our community. You, you know, we've, we're being treated poorly. Um, there's an 85-mile stretch in Louisiana along the, the Mississippi River that uh, produces many of the petrochemicals within the United States. And many of the communities and neighborhoods and homes that were next to those were minorities and low income. So those areas of the country were, were some early actions when it came to environmental justice. And so if we were to compare... Kentucky, if you were to identify a, a census tract or a, a neighborhood and we compared that to, na- to the nation, then there may be, if, if the percentile wise, that neighborhood may not be one of the top fifth percentile, the top 10th percentile for the nation. But when we, as the environmental agency within, this, within our state, as we are trying to defi- decide where we prioritize our efforts, or if we're doing a permitting action, or if we're looking at whether we need to modify our engagement activities, then we want to look at this from a state perspective. We want to say, is this in the top fifth percentile of our state? Um, is this is the top 10th percentile of our state. And then there are other, other things that come into play. It also depends on the program as well. So if we were looking at, is this a disadvantaged community for air quality or for proximity to um, highways that may impact um ozone or something like that, then certain areas of the state are going to be identified as disadvantaged. But if we were looking at drinking water, for instance, if you're in the city of Louisville, the Louisville Water Company has a pretty good water system. They have very pretty good water quality. But if you compare that water quality to, say, Martin County, Kentucky, then the Martin County area maybe doesn't have as many air quality issues but it may have more issues with their water system. And so we really have to look at the specific program and the specific environmental issue because different areas of the state are going to be identified as disadvantaged based on that. So then the last bullet is the workload. So between all these, uh, in Justice 40, the Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, PFAS, you know, all the other things, there's a tremendous impact and increase in workload for state and local agencies. You know, as every single one of these comes out, it's a great thing that we have access to that. 
but it does put a strain on our workforce that's already decreased. And it's and we have to prioritize how we use those funds and where we invest our time and our efforts into doing that. So it, it's a great thing to have these programs coming out, but it does cause a workload increase that you know we're having to ramp up. Um, luckily, we are able to to hire some temporary employees, some contract employees for the terms of these infrastructure bills and the Inflation Reduction Act bills. Um, but it takes time to find qualified people to do those jobs. So just to kind of wrap that up, which is the best tool? Well, that's going to depend on the user um, and how much training you've been able to find. Luckily, EPA has put together some great tools and as Brian pointed out, he is willing and able and to train people on how to use AJ Screen. But it's important to learn how to use those tools. AJ Screen can be a little bit complicated, but once you get to know it and once you understand how to use it, it can be very useful and very helpful. Um, so increasing your understanding of the tools is paramount to being able to, to use that tool. The Climate and Economic Justice Screen Tool, it's pretty easy to look at. It's either white or gray. It's either disadvantaged or not disadvantaged. But my recommendation is that, you know, we're going to probably use EJ Screen unless we're required to use CJST, just because when it comes to what we plan on using them for, I think that EJ Screen tends to have a lot more functionality and to be more versatile. But because of all the, the variability and the different definitions, that just that highlights how important it is for us as a state agency to define how we're going to use those and develop standard procedures for what are we going to do and which things are we going to click on when we use these tools so that we make sure that we do it consistently and that we make sure that we're using the tool to identify those areas that are disadvantaged and that we want to prioritize. Because one of the concerns that we have is that if you have so much variability in, in the outcome and you could use one tool or another tool and get a different answer, that if everything could be considered in an environmental justice area, then you raise the question of, are you really prioritizing? Yeah. Thank you so much. It is time, I guess, for me to say something. I'm not going to do a big introduction of myself. I think most of you know who I am. But I just want to leave you with some words to think about. And uh, what I was going to talk about was ethics and principles of environmental justice. Drawing from the civil rights movement, the environmental justice movement has articulated environmental human rights or the right to a clean environment. This ethical position asserts that everyone has the right to clean air, water, food, and housing. This movement asserts that these are not privileges, but rather rights to everyone. And that public officials have a special responsibility to protect these rights, especially in the lives of the poor and vulnerable. Community groups and the environmental justice movement take action when public officials fail to act justly. Environmental justice groups have argued that the solution to environmental injustices must involve more democratic forms of governance that increases citizen participation in land and resource use decisions. However, stumbling blocks in this pathway include the ever-known redlining, zoning changes, lending and hiring practices, depressed property values, and community uh, divided into itself to keep confusion, allowing those who do harm to blend in with those who are being harmed and blaming each other. 
taking credit for decisions that they were not a part of within the community. Politically speaking, our representatives often depend on the funds of the polluters to provide the support of their campaign, or they do not educate themselves about the challenges facing the community and make propositions that they cannot keep or will, in the end, hurt the community for political grandstanding. This is in itself an imminent danger for any decision. Justice is a quality of relationship, not only an outcome of a legislative and legal process. Ultimately, the solution to any environmentally hazardous activity lies not only in an equitable distribution of harms, but also in designing industrial pr production processes so that pollution is prevented, not merely the escape of pollutants, but the very concept of industrial waste. What are the three environmental ethics? There are many different principles on which to draw in moral reasons about specific environmental problems. This lesson reviews three basic pairs in principles, justice and sustainability, sufficiency and compassion, solidarity and participation. Solidarity and participation, the pr principle of so solidarity invites us to consider how we relate to each other in community. It assumes that we recognize that we are part of it, of at least one family, one biological family, our local community, or our national community. But there then challenges, changes us to consider the full range of relationships with others. In a globalizing economy, we participate in a vast international economic community, one in which goods and services are provided for us by those on the other side of the world. Solidarity requires us to consider this kind of extended community and to act in such a way that reflects concerns for the well-being of others. When it comes to uh, frequently in environmental cases, costs and benefits are considered only in monetary terms. But while the assessment of such financial costs is an essential part of many ethical analysis, it cannot be the whole of each analysis. And it is important to try to name what else constitutes harm and benefits. One way of doing this might be to say, for instance, that harm is constituted by things like premature death, undue pain, or the violation of human economic and political rights. And environmental action that leads to very likely or very likely will lead to such harms would be ethically problematic. We need to question, will the decision I make cause a greater harm and loss of support, physically, mentally, emotionally, or economically? Can the goal I set be reached that will only enhance the community? Can the goal I support be attainable without causing hardship for even the least in the community? These are three alternative ways of meeting these goals. At this point, the 17 principles of environmental justice, many of you have heard these, just want to bring it back to mind. This, uh, the, the, uh, the principles of environmental justice was put together somewhere around, I think it was 1997, 97, 98. But it starts off with the preamble. We, the people of color, gathered together today at this multinational people of color environmental leadership summit to begin to build a national and international movement of all people of color to fight the destruction and taking of our lands and communities. Do hereby reestablish our spiritual interdependence to the sacredness of Mother Earth, to respect and celebrate each of our cultures, language, and beliefs about the natural world and our roles in healing ourselves, to ensure environmental justice, 
to promote economic alternatives, which would contribute to the development of environmentally safe livelihoods and to secure our political, economic, and cultural liberation that has been denied for over 500 years of colonization and oppression, resulting in the poisoning of our communities and land with the genocide of our people. Do affirm and adopt these principles of environmental justice, number one. Environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth, ecological unity and interdependence of all species and the right to be free from ecological destruction. Environmental justice demands the pub that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all people, free from any form of discrimination or bias. Environmental justice mandates the right to ethical, balanced, and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interest of a sustainable planet for humans and other living things. Environmental justice calls for universal protection from nuclear testing, extraction, production, and disposal of toxic hazardous waste and poisons and nuclear testing that threaten the fundamental right to clean air, land, water, and food. Environmental justice affirms the fundamental right to political, economic, cultural, and environmental self-determination of all people. Environmental justice demands the cessation of the production of all toxins, hazardous waste, radioactive materials, and that all, all past and current producers be held strictly accountable to the people for detoxification and the containment at the point of production. Environmental justice demands the right to participate as equal partners at every level of decision-making, including needs assessments, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. Environmental justice affirms the right of all workers to a safe and healthy work environment without being forced to choose between an unsafe livelihood and unemployment. It also affirms the right of those who work at home to be free from environmental hazards. Environmental justice protects the right of victims of environmental injustice to receive full compensation and reparations for damage as well as quality health care. Environmental justice considers governmental acts and environmental injustice a violation of international law. The Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the United Nations Convention on Genocide. Environmental justice must recognize a special legal and natural relationship of Native people to the U.S. government that through treaties, agreements, compacts, and covenants affirming sovereignty and self-determination. Environmental justice affirms the need of urban and rural ecological policies to clean up and rebuild our cities and rural areas in balance with nature, honoring the cultural integrity of our communities and providing fair access for all to the full range of resources. Environmental justice calls for the strict enforcement of principles of informed consent and a halt to the testing of experimental reproductive and medical procedures and vaccinations on people of color. That may be outdated. Environmental justice opposes the destructive operation of multinational corporations. Environmental justice opposes military occupation, repression, and exploitation of lands, people, cultures, and other life forms. Environmental justice calls for the education of present and future generations, which emphasizes social and environmental issues based on our experience and appreciation of our diverse cultural perspectives. Environmental justice requires that we, as individuals, make personal and consumer choices to consume as little of Mother Earth resources and to produce as little waste as possible and make the conscious decision to challenge and reprioritize our lifestyle to ensure the health of the natural world for the present and future generations. I hope I just kind of brought everything together of all the things that we've talked about 
And if there is further no, nothing else that I need to say, except thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's how the Environmental Justice Conference concluded online back on October 1st. Forward Radio was there, and we're proud to bring it to you here on Truth to Power. And we look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.